Welcome you to Laguna Presbyterian Church, especially those of you visiting with us today. We are delighted that you're here with us. There is a friendship pad on each pew. It's a black folder it's near the center aisle, and we'd love to have you fill it out and let us know you're here today and pass it down the row so that other people can do that too. Uh, you can see the announcements in the life of the church on our connections that are inside of your bulletin. Uh, this afternoon, our preacher this morning will be, will be speaking at four this afternoon also. And in a few minutes, Gareth will tell you more about him and about his books that are available. 
There is a blood drive that is this Wednesday, and they are still signing people up for that. They are in a blood crisis across the United States because they uh, are actually having to delay some surgeries because they don't have blood. So if you possibly can give blood, please do so. You can see that on Saturdays, August 17th and 24 at 9 in the morning, we are going to have two town hall meetings. These are chances to brainstorm and dream about the future of Laguna Presbyterian Church. What is it that you've been thinking that maybe God is calling us to? What would you like to see here? Those are chances for you to express that, and those will be reflected in our final mission study. So you can come either one of those Saturday mornings, and we'd love it if you'd sign up out on the patio to let us know which one of those you're coming to so we've got enough space for you. And we're also very delighted to welcome into our office Kathleen Fay. She is our new office manager. Uh, she is a member of our congregation, and you will recognize her if you come upstairs to our office. It's just delightful to have her. Gareth. So we are fortunate to have the Reverend Dr. Ron White here today. Uh, Ron is not only a long-term friend of Jerry Tankersley, who's been with you for many years, but also a friend of mine. Now, that ought to be scary enough to have two pastors as friends, okay? Ron, um, what I really appreciate about Ron in terms of his writing about Lincoln and Grant and uh, upcoming uh, biographies that he's working on is that he digs into the true, deeper faith character, the moral character of, of these men in a way that is often hidden from our history because we've been... Um, ambivalent about seeing our leadership from their true moral character perspective. And that can be good news and bad news. In the case of Grant and Lincoln, it's really good news. Not perfect, but strong, positive leaders. And so that's what, one of the reasons we invited him, because our country can use strong, positive leadership. And we want to encourage everyone to listen to what that might mean. So, Ron, thank you for being here today. It's great to have you. Let's welcome him. And he will be uh, lecturing this afternoon at 4 o'clock after uh, this morning's services. He will be out here in the patio signing books if you want to have a book signed. And this afternoon after the lecture, we'll also be signing some books if you want to do that. Let's pray. Gracious God, in light of the tragedies and the violence and the pain that we see around us in the world, we are glad to be in your calm and gracious presence. Help us to be formed by the character of Christ, even as we worship you, the living God, whom we want to follow and imitate. And so gather us around your presence. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please join me for our call to worship. Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Their, Their delight, delight is in the law of the Lord, and on, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. Amen. Let us stand and worship.
sing all creatures. All creatures of our God and King, lift your voice. Lift up your voice and with us sing.
say I am found. Let the blind ones say I can see. Let the dead ones say I am born again. Precious Lord, take my
with the band playing. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Therefore, in the light of Christ, let us confess our sin. God, you placed us in the world to be salt, to be light, and to be a living demonstration of your kingdom. If we're honest, we confess that Jesus' teachings seem impractical. We, we judge, judge others. others. We let, let anger take, take hold of us. We, we give way to vengeance. We do, we do not seek reconciliation. We lack the courage to follow you, Lord, in your way of love, love of neighbor, love of stranger, love of enemy. Forgive us, Lord Christ, as we bring to you the silent confessions of our hearts. For we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. My friends, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given you. 
Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. This is the good news. In Jesus Christ we have asked and are given the gift of forgiveness. Thanks be to God. Amen. March 4, 1865, Abraham Lincoln rose to give his second inaugural address. 
The nation was deeply divided. We now know that there were 750,000 dead in a nation of but 30 million people. We've suffered 4,500 dead in a nation of 330 million people. Every person there must have suffered the loss of a father, husband, son, brother. They were expecting Lincoln to give a triumphal speech. In those days, the parade was before the speech, and a Washington press in one of the floats said, this is his day to crow a bit. This is what we do when we win wars. We are triumphal. And Lincoln offered a very different address that surprised people. The next day, a Washington correspondent caught it. He called it, this was Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. And of the four scripture passages, let me read from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Leadership. When Gareth and I started to talk about this some months ago, we thought this would be a topic we could do for this entire weekend. I'm delighted to be here in this congregation again. Kathy and Steve were my students in seminary. <laughs> as Gareth has already said, Jerry and Gareth are dear friends, as are some of you in this congregation. And a dear friend has driven all the way from Carlsbad to be here this morning. Leadership. On Friday at the Rotary Club of Laguna Beach, we talked about the Gettysburg Address. This will be a new nation under God, a new birth of freedom. What are the values of leadership that Lincoln lifted up in that brief two-and-a-half-minute Gettysburg Address? Today I want to talk about the Second Inaugural Address. I might call it American Scripture. Sometimes we separate, we say church and state. We never really separate religion and politics. Lincoln spoke to his audience. He speaks to us today. This afternoon, I want to talk about Ulysses S. Grant. I've been privileged to be part of the C-SPAN Presidential Historian Survey. They've done three in the 20th century, 2000, 2009, and 2017, with two new presidents in the 20, 20, 21st century. Grant has risen 11 places, 11 places in just 17 years. You have to come at 4 o'clock to find out why. <laughs> this address is 701 words, six and a half minutes. People were still arriving as Lincoln was finishing. In this address, Lincoln mentions God 14 times, quotes the Bible four times, invokes prayer three times. When I first started my journey with Lincoln, I still wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking about him. My academic friend said, don't get too excited. Inaugural addresses always mention the Bible. Oh, yes. I looked at the previous 18 addresses. The Bible had been mentioned one time in the previous 18 addresses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So said John Quincy Adams. Oh, it's in all the contemporary inaugural addresses. But if you notice carefully, it's usually in the last paragraph. And we need God's help, too. 
Lincoln is far more profound than that. I place this in your bulletin. If you'd take it out, we're going to look at this together. Lincoln begins at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office. There is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. This is not exactly four score and seven years ago. What is Lincoln doing? Where is he going? Oh, we need to step back a moment and set the scene. There's about 25 to 35,000 people who arrive that day. It's a dark, windy, rainy, muddy day. There were sharpshooters ringing all the buildings, plain clothesmen throughout the crowd. There had never been a president of the United States assassinated, but the word was out that Lincoln might be assassinated or perhaps he would be kidnapped on that day. It was a very apprehensive experience. The people who arrived that day wrote in their diaries and letters which I've read their experiences. Anyone been to a presidential inauguration? You've certainly seen them on television. They're wonderful events, are they not? Especially if it's your candidate. But I read the letters and diaries and discovered that the people there were deeply angry. They were angry. Why were they angry? Because everyone had lost a father, husband, son, brother, and they wanted Lincoln to give voice to their anger, to speak out against the South. That's what we do when we face our enemy, is it not? But Lincoln had a completely different idea in mind. In the first paragraph, he three times tells the audience what he cannot do. Now, we've been listening to the Democratic debates, and four years we listen to the Republican debates, and every one of those candidates tells us what he or she can do. Lincoln takes exactly the opposite approach. He tells us what he cannot do. Watch and listen. Line two, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Line seven or eight, right in the middle, little that is new could be presented. Second line from the bottom of the first paragraph, no prediction to it is ventured. What an unusual way to execute leadership, to tell us what we cannot do. In the second paragraph, I suggest we begin to get a sense of what Lincoln's strategy here is, what he's attempting to say. For the question, voiced or unvoiced, in everyone who's there is, how will this nation come back together again? That's the question we're facing today. How will this nation come back together again? And Lincoln alone, not the preachers, not the professors, not the politicians, offers a very unusual approach. His use of what I call inclusive language, inclusive language, listen to it. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. Both parties deprecated war. Do you see what he's doing? He's giving the best possible motivation to the supposed enemy, the people of the South. Would it be possible in 2019 to say to those with whom we disagree, I know you love America. I know you are a patriot. We may have different ideas, but I give you the benefit of the doubt in terms of your attitude. Lincoln does this to the surprise of his audience. Now, the first time I ever spoke about this was at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And wouldn't you know that there was a PhD from Princeton University, a professor of English, who said, oh, but Dr. White, wouldn't you have to recognize that at the end of that second paragraph, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive? Ah, yes, but. 
when you and I listen to politicians, it's extremely important, or preachers, extremely important to listen to what they do not say, what they do not say, as opposed to what they do say. For what if Lincoln would have said it this way, both parties deprecated war, but those traitors, those confederates, those tyrants, those rebels, why the people would have risen up and applaud, but he didn't want them to do that. He very self-consciously used this generic, tame wording, but one of them. Listen to what a politician does not say to raise up our anger. At the end of the paragraph, Lincoln has been rehearsing why this is all taking place. The audience is now with him, and he concludes with an interesting sentence, and the war came. I want you to notice that in the 701 words, 505 are one syllable. Lincoln was a student of the Bible. He loved what he called, he didn't call it the King James Bible, he called it the Saxon Bible. And the Saxon Bible is full of strong, sturdy, one-syllable words. The same with Shakespeare, one sturdy syllable words. Those who are monitoring the SAT exams in these days are very struggling, are struggling with the fact that students today don't seem to know how to write. And so when they write essays, they think if they write big words, this will impress the reader. Lincoln doesn't use big words. He uses strong one-syllable words. Look at that sentence. And the war came for words one syllable. Now throughout the paragraph and throughout the sense of the war was, we think the war was all about the activity of the soldiers, the generals, Lincoln is commander-in-chief. The war is the direct object of the actions of those people. Look at that last sentence. It's like Bach inverts the last chorale of the St. John's Passion. He completely changes it around, and the war came. The war is now the subject. It is the one acting. When I spoke that day at Colorado Springs, my guide, my host, was a Marine Corps major. He told me he'd been wounded one afternoon in Vietnam 38 times. They sent him to Japan and told him he could go home to the United States. He said, no, I'm going back to Vietnam. He said to me, and I didn't understand it at the time, it was before the beginning of the war with Iraq, he said, Ron, a war is coming to this country. And we will be told by the leaders of our country and the leaders of the military that we will win the next war very quickly because we are the greatest military force in the world. And we are, he said, do not believe it. The next war will go on and on and on and on, and it's still going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. The North thought they would win the war in three months. They had more than twice as many men in arms. They had an industrial might the South could never match. But Lincoln came to understand, which we struggle to understand, that war has a life of its own. And the war came. Now, how do you think he said that last sentence? I know this is a sermon and I can't really make it too interactive, but I want you to sort of almost think to yourself, how did he say it? I think he said it sadly, mournfully. There was no triumph here. How can you be triumphant when 750,000 men have been killed? And the war came. In the third paragraph, he rehearses what is the purpose of this war. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union. 
but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. At the beginning of the commemoration of the Civil War in 2011, the Pew Charitable Trust did a national survey asking people what were, what were the causes of the war. The answers were all over the place. The only, only group that thought the cause of the war was slavery were people over the age of 65. Those between 18 and 29 didn't seem to have any understanding whatsoever was the cause of the war. I've spoken all over this country, and I know that those secession documents were all rooted in slavery. And Lincoln says it very clearly here. Everyone knew that slavery was somehow the cause of the war. We went through a long period, for those of us who grew up in the 20th century, of saying, well, there was courage on both sides, and we didn't want to face the fact that there was an issue of that war in the issue of slavery. If you turn the page, Lincoln then turns his understanding when he suddenly says, about four or five lines down, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. One of the interesting places of my research was the American Bible Society in New York City. Here I found all kinds of Bibles, often with a soldier writing in his life verse, some Bibles stained in blood. When they cleared the battlefield at Gettysburg to prepare for that Gettysburg address, Edward Everett and Abraham Lincoln, they found diaries and watches and all sorts of things. What they chiefly found were Bibles. Both sides read the same Bible. And then Lincoln does something unusual for our day. He has a semicolon. We're kind of dumbing down the English language with our texting. And so semicolons are dropping out. Lincoln uses them all the time. And they're often assigned to him. He's going to now change the direction of his thought. Both, side, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, semicolon, and each invokes his aid against the other. Lincoln is really saying, how dare each side invade, invoke God's aid against the other? Do we worship a tribal God? Do we worship a territorial God? Ministers were coming to Lincoln. He knew they were coming to Jefferson Davis saying, God is on our side, God is on our side. And one day Lincoln, exasperated, leaped out of his chair and said, I'd like to figure out how I can be on God's side. He then invokes the first of his biblical passages. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. I looked for a long time for the antecedents of this address. You know Martin Luther King's great I Have a Dream speech. You can find that he gave parts of that speeches in previous times. You can find that. I couldn't find any time before this that Lincoln had ever offered any of these words. This was brand new for that day. Except, three months to the day, two women came to see him. They had learned that uh, Lincoln was a softy when women came with their tears to ply him. He hated Friday, which he called Butcher's Day. This was the day the generals would send him a list of men to be executed because they'd failed to follow through in duty. They'd run. They'd done this, that, and the other. One day Lincoln wrote back about one young man. He wrote back to the general, I think this man will do better above ground than below ground. <laughs> the man went on to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
But the two women came and said, our husbands, Confederate officers in a Union prison, are Christian men. They are Christian men. Lincoln drove his secretaries crazy. He said to the women, well, come back tomorrow. Let's continue that conversation. He talked to them the second day, and he said, would you like to come back tomorrow? And finally, on the third day, he said to these two women, I find it very difficult when you tell me your husbands are Christian men. How can Christian men go against the duly constituted authority of this country? And then he quoted, I'm sure he did it from memory, he quoted this book, this passage from memory. You see, what he's saying is the Bible is not simply there and then. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's here and now. So how can men dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces? Slavery. That's how your husbands have made a living. Slavery. And finally he says to these two women who must have been exact, I don't think that's the kind of faith that gets people to heaven. And he asked them to leave. But Noah Brooks of the Sacramento Daily Union was sitting out in the hallway And he said, Noah, would you come in? I want to write down what I said to these two women. Maybe I will use this someday, three months to the day he uses it. But there's one of those semicolons again. My goodness, a semicolon. I think Lincoln thought to himself, boy, that sounded a little harsh. I think I was a little tough on those women. So he immediately invokes, but let us judge not that we be not judged. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has His own purposes. Now you need to know a little bit about Lincoln's story. He was born in 1809 in Kentucky. Grew up in Kentucky and Indiana. He grew up in an environment of the sec- called the Second Great Awakening. A Baptist environment. No disrespect to any Baptists here today. It was very emotional. And he reacted against that emotion. And he did what many of your children or grandchildren have done. He walked away from the Christian faith. He rejected it. When he moved to New Salem, he actually wrote a paper criticizing the Bible and so-called revealed Christianity. And one of his friends ripped it out of his hand and threw it into the fire because that's not what you do if you're going to be an aspiring politician in the 19th century, critique Orthodox Christianity. But then life tumbled in, as it does for every one of us. It began in 1850, when Eddie, three and a half years old, died. And Lincoln went looking for the Episcopal minister who had married them, but he was out of town, and so he found the young, the new young Presbyterian minister who came to do the funeral. Funerals were always done in homes. And that began a relationship. They joined the church, paid for a pew in 1853. If you've seen the movie, Lincoln, you know that life really tumbled in when Willie died, 1862. You never want to see a child is more, more like the parent than another. But Willie was that child. He was 11 years of age. But at that moment, someone had entered Lincoln's life. Phineas Densmore Gurley was the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, number one in his class at Princeton Seminary, a remarkable preacher. And Gurley preached a sermon that day. And Lincoln asked if he could have that sermon to carry it in his hands. And Gurley's sermon said to Lincoln, I ask you to trust in biblical providence. For all, all of us are on a faith journey. And if Lincoln was a skeptic, 
He called himself a fatalist. Maybe we'd call him a deist. As life tumbled in, he took a fresh look at the Christian faith. It couldn't be the faith of his parents. That was far too emotional. It became in Springfield and in Washington a Presbyterian faith, which he found much more thoughtful, much more rational, much more willing to deal with the ambiguity of life. And that became his lodestar. But nobody knew it. It was a private journey. After a second defeat at Bull Run or Manassas in September 1862, Lincoln sat down and wrote out something he never thought any of us would ever see. I've held it in my hands. It's now in the John, J., in the John Hay Library in Brown University. Lincoln writes to himself, the will of God prevails. Both sides say they are following the will of God. That cannot be. Can, God cannot be this and that at the same time. And then he offers this incredible sentence. It may be that God's purpose is different from the purpose of either party. And yet God uses the human instrumentalities to affect his purpose. So as Lincoln marches forward in this address, he then changes his tenor of speech one more time. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. You know, if I can say this politely, inaugural addresses are really efforts of self-congratulation. Thomas Jefferson, second inaugural, oh, thank you so much for re-electing me. I realize you know what a great job I did in my first term. And their self-congratulation about our nation. We are so terrific. We are so wonderful. We don't have any flaws at all. And Lincoln dares to do what's almost unheard of in inaugural addresses. There's something wrong in our country. Something deeply wrong. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Well, the audience knew, which we may not know, that he was sounding like a Puritan preacher who preached what was called Jeremiads from the book of Jeremiah. In the second and third generation in New England, the preachers railed against the people. You have forgotten the faith of your parents. You have forgotten the faith of your grandparents. And always the audience wanted to know, well, what have we done? And so the audience listening to Lincoln wants to know, what have we done? If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses. Now, if he'd admitted the word slavery, they probably would have applauded. Okay, that's the South. That's the guys that do that. No, no, no. This is an American problem. Lincoln inherited a case of a Connecticut ship owner who had traveled to Africa to bring back slaves to this country. He had been sentenced to death by hanging. The man's widow, came, man's wife, came to Lincoln twice with her tears to plead for him. Lincoln, let the sentence go forward. This man committed this crime. He will be hung until he's dead. American slavery is that offense. By which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern any departure from those divine attributes? which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him. Fondly do we hope, fervently we pray, Lincoln loved alliteration, fondly, fervently, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. On the Sunday after Fort Sumter, he heard Phineas Densmore Skirley preach about the mighty scourge of war. He didn't forget that sermon. He picked it up in his second inaugural address.
Yet if God wills it, it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. Now you're sitting out there in the audience. It's cold, it's wet, and you're asked to think back, let's see, 250. My goodness, he's saying this goes right back to the beginning of our country. Slavery was here from the beginning and we've never dealt with it. We passed on it when we enacted the Constitution. Till every blop of blood drawn with a lash, slavery, shall not paid by another drawn with a sword, 750,000 dead. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Before the audience is almost seated, Lincoln's ready to close. Let me suggest that Frederick Douglass got it best. A tremendous biography of Frederick Douglass written by David Blight won the Pulitzer Prize this fall. Frederick Douglass was the greatest African-American in the 19th century. He was in the audience that day. He looked around. He realized that people were not exactly sure what Lincoln was saying or meaning, but he wrote in his diary that day, this was not a state paper. This was a sermon. This was a sermon. Well, what are sermons? You listen to them. You have the privilege of listening to wonderful preachers and pastors here. Let me suggest that a sermon has basically two points. The first is what I call the indicative, where we and the preacher announces to the congregation that in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has come into the world, and we have the possibility of responding to that gracious love. The second part is what I would call the imperative. Now, this is done in different ways, depending upon who the preacher is. Suddenly, the preacher might be warm and folksy. I don't know how Gareth does it. I haven't heard him for a while. He sort of says, all right, friends, in the coming week, therefore, we need to live what? In forgiveness, in reconciliation, in patience. This is the ethical imperative. So let me suggest that the first three paragraphs are the indicative, the almighty has his own purposes. This is what God has done. This is what Jesus has done. But the last paragraph, probably we should put a therefore to really get it, is what we are to do. And this is remarkable. I close with this. Lincoln is a 19th century person. He cannot solve climate change for us. He cannot tell us what to do in Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. But I think he offers a spirit to us. He offers values to us. And these values are in this final paragraph. I'm going to ask us to say this final paragraph aloud. For we live in a deeply divided time. And I think Lincoln can still speak to us about how can we can revere our country and listen to each other and have the values of the Christian faith coming right through this congregation. Let's say it together. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Amen. Gracious God, as we have heard, people before us have wrestled with your goodness and presence during times of great dissonance. And so today, 
During this time of trouble and difference, we wrestle with your presence of goodness. It is hard for us to see providence when we are doing things to one another that are so hard to understand. Even over the past day, our news calls attention to mass slayings in Dayton and El Paso. It seems that we are hell-bent on doing damage to one another and providing the means to do that with attitude and with guns, with an overall openness to having violence solve our problems. O Lord, help us to live into your nature, your goodness, your justice, your righteousness. The pattern that we see in Jesus. Help us to invoke who you are and not just our own opinions about what we think you should do. We ask that you would help us to become a people of peace, of righteousness and goodness, of being able to forgive, to not be people of vengeance and vindictiveness. Help us to listen to your providence and your justice rolling down from heaven toward us. Teach us to listen even as we pray. For as Jesus listened and offered his prayers, we do so even as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you now to stand and to affirm the faith that we have in our living God as we articulated in 1967 from our denominational creeds. To be reconciled to God is to be sent into the world as God's reconciling community. This community, the church universal, is entrusted with God's message of reconciliation and shares God's labor of healing the enmities which separate people from God and from each other. Christ has called the church to this mission and given it the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church maintains continuity with the apostles and with Israel by faithful obedience to his call. Amen. Please be seated. Each week we are invited to give of what God has given to us, of who we are and what we have. We are in a world that is trying to teach us that giving should have strings attached should be polarized, you should only give to people with whom you agree. We like to give, but 
We just don't think it fits our agenda. I'm suggesting today we get our butts out of the way. And yes, you did hear it. And give the way God has called us to give. Let us give in the pattern of Jesus. Amen.
And so, gracious God, as we offer these gifts to you, for you have given all good gifts to us, we ask that justice from you would roll down through us to others, that we would become people of goodness and reconciliation and justice to the world around us. Teach us the way of Jesus and help us to live the good as you've shown us to live in righteousness and goodness. And so we commit ourselves with these gifts to do so through Christ we pray. Amen. And so if you've been wrestling with something for which you would like prayers, a couple of members of our congregation would like to meet you with you over here and to join with you in prayer. And then as you go today, remember that Dr. White will be with us again this afternoon at 4 o'clock to do a presentation around Ulysses S. Grant. And following this service out on the patio is to be present to be able to sign books uh, for you if you have a book or you're going to purchase a book to do so. You can do the same this afternoon after the presentation. And my charge to you comes from Abraham Lincoln with malice toward none, with charity for all, and who is worthy to carry out that kind of ethical imperative. Go now in the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion and power of the Holy Spirit. And together we will say, Amen. Amen.